The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. China's U.S. debt threat may backfire in the People's Republic, and what Nelson Peltz has to say about activism. These are the topics we'll be discussing on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Jen. So let's start off with China. Beijing is considering cutting back its purchase of U.S. government debt, even to the point of stopping buying it altogether. It's simply a matter of thinking about asset diversification, say officials. But with the tariff-minded Trump administration about to receive the results of investigations into Chinese steel and aluminium imports, this may be Beijing's way of sending a warning shot across the bow. Trouble is, ditching U.S. debt, as with other retaliatory measures the People's Republic might take, risks hurting its own economy. Chris Bedell here, in town from D.C. to discuss this, one of our columnists. So, Chris, the news came out on Wednesday about China potentially looking at uh, stopping or cutting back on U.S. debt. Is there anything to, to them saying that would just want to diversify a bit out of I mean, they are the biggest holder of U.S. government debt, by, among foreign governments at least. So, That's right. I think there actually is a very real chance that they might be just diversifying their assets. Um, the original report said that there might be, uh, you know, a mixture of motives involved, maybe asset diversification, maybe also kind of a hint at the trade conflict. It's not really clear what they might intend by that. But um, certainly they have looked to keep Treasury holdings at kind of a certain proportion of their overall foreign exchange holdings. Um, but I think, as you say, uh, you know, we have several investigations into U.S. imports that are coming due later this month. Um, it's not inconceivable that this is, as you say, you know, a shot across the bow, that they might want to send a message that they do have a bit of leverage in this domain over the United States. And let's just go through what, what that would do so, to, to America, at least. So if, if, the US, if, if China stopped buying treasuries or even started selling them, and they own what now, $1.2 trillion worth of debt, U.S. debt, which is about 20% of um, overall foreign holdings of U.S. debt, so big on both counts. What happens to America's economy if, if China really does start selling? So I think your general idea is that interest rates, well, the yields start going up, so it costs more for America to borrow, I suppose, right. is the big, big first thing. So, so what happens next? What does, what does America have to worry about? Well, I would say surprisingly little, actually, um, and that's what I tried to get across in my view. Um, certainly, I mean, the first order impact is that Treasury yields will rise, which we saw happen today. And that might potentially present a problem because – uh, the deficit is expected to increase with the recently passed tax cuts. The Federal Reserve is winding down its balance sheet. So you could have some some issues there if yields start to spike much more than we've seen in the past. And that means that hurts the economy. It also means that um, companies that borrow money have to pay more for it. Right. right. So there's the knock-on effects there, whatever size that happens to be. Right. So there, I, I don't want to downplay the fact. I mean, this could have real um, repercussions. That said... If you're sitting in Beijing right now and you're considering this as a retaliatory option, it has a lot of features that don't really appeal to you. So the, once you start selling off U.S. treasuries, uh, you weaken the value of the U.S. dollar and you're going to increase the value of the Chinese yuan, which is the whole reason, mind you, that they have U.S. treasuries and a lot of them to begin with. Right. So um, if you take it that they, they had those for a good reason, selling them um, 
might have some currency effects that they don't necessarily want to yeah, see. I mean, one of the one of the, the things people have long said about uh, the Chinese in, in buying um, U.S. government debt is it's a very much a, a mercantilist idea, i.e. we're doing this to meet, to make sure that our economy and our exports especially uh, look pretty attractive. So going the other way reverses that effect. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so that right there uh, is not exactly what they want to see in that regard. Not that they're necessarily opposed to a little bit of currency strengthening, right. um, but certainly as if you were to take this as a, a large-scale sell-off, which is you know sending a message to the Americans, um, this isn't that ideal. Yeah. Um, there's also the fact that it's not clear. I mean, you could mitigate that potentially by buying other U.S. dollar-denominated assets, but again, they have all these treasuries for a reason, which is that that's the market that is deep, it's liquid. Um, if you were to face a currency crisis back home, um, like they had a bit of a scare in 2015 going into 2016, you want to be able to sell that off really quickly. And it's just not clear where else they're going to yeah, put what, money. Yeah, what else can you buy? You could probably buy you know, bonds of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but they've probably got some of those already because they have quasi-government anyway. AAA U- U.S. corporate debt, there isn't much of that out there. Um, so what else do you buy? Um, foreign governments selling U.S. denominated bonds? It's it's just that's, that's 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 not stable either necessarily. Right. Yeah. Okay. So so what? So and your point here is look, this is just one example of how in a trade war China's hand isn't particularly strong. Although I think it's probably fair to say that in any trade war um, there will be um, you know, anything that a country does can well um, uh, backfire on it. But go through some of the other things. We've already seen obviously a few tit for tat examples. Uh, between the U.S. and China recently. So what, what else can we look at and say, okay, this is why the trade war is not a good thing for either party or, or why it doesn't actually achieve anything? Right. So you're absolutely right that, I mean, any trade conflict, any trade measure that you're going to do is going to have repercussions. But especially for, for China, it's a very large surplus country. Um, it's especially true for them um, that they have a lot of options including selling treasuries, um, which has been on the cards and discussed for almost a decade now, um, slapping tariffs on various U.S. goods. But when you start to run through that list of options, you quickly realize that they don't really have a lot of clean shots, that there's nothing that really works out in their favor. So they've done this before. We've seen, we've seen retaliatory tariffs, uh, which they do like to employ. We've seen this in, for example, when the EU slapped tariffs on Chinese solar panels a few years ago, and they responded by slapping... Um, by launching an investigation into dumping from uh, on European wines into China. Um, we also saw it in 2009 with U.S. Uh, tariffs on Chinese tire imports, and then they hit back at uh, U.S. exports of chicken products like chicken feet. Um, so in, in all these cases, I mean, there's a pretty clear pattern here, which is they're quite targeted. Um, they're, so, for instance, for e, the EU, uh, when they went after the wines that hit the southern European countries that were pushing for tariffs against Chinese solar panels. So they're, they're quite calculated to right. inflict political pain, but they're not very large in the sense that they would escalate a trade war, which is not in Beijing's interest. Right. It's designed to be a deterrent so that you don't keep slapping tariffs on them, but no more than that. They kind of stop. And there's, there's nothing, I suppose, that the, the U.S. Treasury's uh, stockpile is, is the single largest thing they've got that they, they could look at. But there's no, if you look at goods and services, there's, is, is there any one product that either country couldn't do without if there was a trade war? It's hard to say because it depends on how rigorously they can enforce some of this stuff. So, for instance, what does the U.S. sell to China? Well, I mean, you get things like vehicles and aircraft. I mean, Boeing does quite a bit of business. 
Um, but, you know, one of the biggest or maybe the biggest uh, categories, agricultural products. It's almost a, a fifth of what we in the United States send over to China. Right. Um, the issue there is that those are kind of staple goods. They're used in a lot of um, just everyday things, and consumers wouldn't be able to kind of opt for, you know, instead of Boeing, we go over to Airbus or something right. like that. Um, you kind of have to use them. So what you're effectively doing is you're just taxing your own consumers, and then it starts to feed into inflation figures and so forth. Um, so you could do it. And, they, I mean, again, they have slapped tariffs in the past on poultry products and so forth. Um, but, again, you just get into the issue that if you're going to – none of these things are scalable. If you want to really inflict political pain on the United States, it's just really hard to do that without China inflicting pain back on itself. All right. Well, there we go. So I think look, let's leave it there. I'm, I'm pretty sure with these reports coming out in the next couple of weeks on steel and uh, aluminum um, uh, imports, we may well have you back on the show to, to go through those. But for now, thanks for talking us through that. Very interesting to know that uh, in trade wars, everyone seems to get hurt. So, Chris, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Tryon Management Chief Executive Nelson Peltz helped Breaking Views kick off the new year with a predictions panel in New York. The activist investor covered a lot of ground, including his hard-won proxy fight with consumer packaged goods giant Procter & Gamble that got him a seat on the board. Joining us in the studio from Dallas is our columnist, Lauren Silva Laughlin, who has been watching Pelts closely. Welcome, Lauren. Hello. Um, so, Lauren, Nelson Peltz said a lot of interesting things and, uh, I mean, a ton of interesting things. But let's start with the fact that he considers himself less an activist and more, um, as he described, as an arm of private equity. So what? A lot of activists, (laughs) yeah, a lot of activists like to market themselves as something other than an activist. Um, because and what, yeah, why is that? Well, activist sort of has a bad connotation now, especially when you're thinking about going to a boardroom and trying to negotiate with CEOs to get them to do what you want them to do. It has, you know, people tend to think that they're hostile, and a lot of times they aren't immediately hostile. Yeah, and um, he, he isn't. And he, yeah, well, not anymore. His, <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, in his case, there is some legitimacy, especially with Procter & Gamble. He really started out pretty easy on them. Um, and... Um, he he does tend to stick around in the companies he owns for a very long time. Um, he does do things that are very private equity-esque. And so um, billing himself as sort of a Henry Kravitz rather than, you know, a uh, Carl Icahn, it actually probably helps his case. And it's not a total stretch either. Yeah. Um, I mean, so one of the things he was talking about was how he – got on the board of, of P&G and, and kind of how he wages his campaigns uh, more broadly. And and he sort of went about it, as you said, kind of in a friendly w- manner, is that he basically writes and says, look, I just want to meet with a board. Like, can I get a, can I get them to talk to me and hear out my proposal? And where things get bad or he gets more agitated, so to speak, is when these boards don't they just shut him out and they decide not to meet with him. And it, it sounded like that was the case in P&G, um, yeah. whereas that's not always the case. Um, he did say last night that he never has met with any with all of the board members, either together or separately, um, at P&G, which I guess is unusual. Yeah, it does seem to be unusual. And also the fight that was waged, uh, I think, was quite unusual in the sense that he was trying to get a seat on the board. Proxy fight happened. Um, the vote goes out. 
PNG comes out with a statement saying that they won. Right. They came out very aggressively saying yeah. that they won immediately after the vote. Um, at the investor annual at the annual investor meeting, you know, it was and it was it was bizarre actually listening to it happen. Um, David Taylor, the CEO, stood up on the stood up on the stage apparently and said, "I've you know, the, basically Peltz had lost this campaign, and walked off." And there was not another peep about it, including on their um, earnings call, which happened several weeks later. David Taylor wasn't on that call. They said immediately at the beginning of the call they weren't going to be discussing the vote. Um, but it was clearly not um, the fact at that time that um, Peltz had lost. Yeah, and, and he held his ground, and he sort of insisted that, you know, it was too close to call. And, you know, one of the points that he made that I think is really interesting in, in itself is that He's like the entire system to count these votes is a sham. Because yeah, I mean, how long did it take to them, for them to dis discover that he'd actually got the seat on the board? Because there was a reversal of the vote, basically, right? Well, there seems to have been a couple of reversals. So what happened was there was the vote vote on that day, but there really isn't an official count until several weeks later. Um, and several weeks later, the you know the proxy group, which was meant to be doing the official vote, said Peltz had won. Um, Procter & Gamble wanted a more close count after that, and then sort of the results of that count came out at the same time as them announcing that Peltz was actually going to be on the board. Seems like the next time they counted, Peltz actually was a few votes shy. And what he said last night is we could count the vote a million times and it probably would go a different way each time. Which is crazy when you really think it, about it. It is crazy, especially in a day and age where like everything is electronic. Right, I right. mean, why was it take so many days? Tru to, like, truly, why this would stuff it take out? so many days? And you know, one could argue, I suppose, that there's somebody in Cincinnati, Ohio, that worked at Procter and Gamble in 1972 who has shares and no computer, and therefore they can't vote. But how many of those people are there really? And you know, yeah, I mean um, that—that's you could account for. I mean, certainly, let, let's let's back up too. And another one of his points is that the Black Rocks and and the State Streets and the vanguards of the world own such big chunks of these companies. Anyway, surely they could they, electronically vote. Absolutely, you know? and and they you know, should know where they're voting. Right. Um, and you know, this is this is a big sort of interesting theme, I think, coming up into the next year, which which Peltz touched on last night, um, but others have been talking about quite a lot, and that is, you know, the sort of passive investment firm fund um, voting differently in these kinds of proxy contests. Typically, they would always vote along with management. In the case of Procter & Gamble, that, that didn't happen. So, you know, as the voting changes, you might see closer proxy right. contests. Right. And the need for a real transparent and easy and fast, perhaps, proxy system becomes more important. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I think he made a, a legitimate point by complaining about it. And it'll be interesting to see if there are going to be others like trying to fix it, and I don't know what that would I mean, entail. it's just sort of the plumbing of this sort of thing that nobody ever thinks about until it becomes a problem. So now he's on the board, right? Right. And, and um, you sort of went through an exercise where you looked and said, okay, P&G, what 
what do you think is going to happen now that he's on the board? Well, he has this mug that he, that, you know, one side, it says sales up, expenses down. And that, I mean, going back to the private equity concept, that's what they at least say they like to do, adding leverage too. But um, that's a lot of what he said at Procter & Gamble. He wants them to, you know, become better in the classes that they're in helping them to get sales up. He wants them to make small acquisitions and fast-growing businesses, which would help that too. He thinks their margins are too high or too low. He wants to restructure um, some of the ma you know management team in the way that they report, and he thinks that this can help get the expenses down as well. Um, but if you run the numbers on that, it only will get him even being somewhat generous, sort of 13% or so return on the stock, which, you know, this is going to take a couple of years for him to do. That would be 13% on top of whatever Procter & Gamble would normally do. So, you know, in a bad economic environment, Procter & Gamble is probably going to do okay. So maybe it's not horrible, but um, I don't think it's the type of returns that investors pay tons of fees for. So he may have uh, some other tricks up his sleeve. Well, and, and, and typically the way he would get his returns, it sounds like, in, in, in his conversation was basically through deals, right? I mean, it happened with Heinz. Yes, exactly. He So he does see a lot of companies through to deals. Um, and he said Heinz is a great example. Dow DuPont is another great example. Um, and he's owned these companies for years. And at the end of them, there seems to be a deal. I mean, Procter & Gamble, though, is huge. Yeah, it's a, and is this his largest? Do you know if this is his largest? It um, is his largest. Yeah. It's, it's the largest um, activist campaign ever on a company. And um, he said at the onset of the the campaign that he wasn't going to break the company up. So you'd have to think that there would be some sort of buyer out there for Procter & Gamble, which is not going to happen. Um, you know, one of the sort of tricks that I've suggested is that he sell the razor business, um, the old Gillette, which he bought, you know, over 10 years ago. Um, it would be a starting point. It would probably be a fairly controversial one because the company would be selling that business for you know, a, a heck of a lot less than what they bought it for, yeah. yes. But it could get him some cash and get the company some cash, and then they could do some of the things that he's urging them to do. Right, which is the flip side of his mug. Yes, is. exactly. Cash is king. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right, Lauren. Well, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Chris Bedor and Laura Silver-Loughlin, and hats off to our producers, Ross Shoulder, Amanda Panzera, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner. Finally, our thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.